you for joining me for this episode of the Fountain Court podcast. I'm Andrew Pullen, a barrister at Fountain Court Chambers based in our Singapore office. In the next two episodes, we're looking at the dispute resolution landscape in Singapore. Singapore is well established amongst the leading centres for international arbitration globally, but this is not the whole story. You'll hear four conversations in total, two in part one and two in part two, each focusing on a different part of the picture. Part one starts with a conversation with Smita Menon about the disputes regime in Singapore, now and in the future. Smita is a partner at Wong Partnership. She's their deputy head of restructuring and insolvency, and she also practices in the field of international arbitration. And she holds several positions with the International Chamber of Commerce, including the ICC Commission for Arbitration and ADR, and as an alternate member of the International Court of Arbitration. I talked to Smita about the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic and disputes in Singapore. We also discussed how the Singapore courts are developing a distinctive jurisprudence in commercial matters. Our second interview, and the final discussion of part one, focuses on international arbitration in Singapore. 2020 saw the Singapore International Arbitration Centre's caseload top 1,000 new matters. We go behind the headline statistic to discuss what is feeding the growth of arbitration in Singapore and look at Singapore's place as an arbitration centre in Asia and the world. For this, I was joined by Delphine Ho and Professor Benjamin Hughes. Delphine Ho is the Registrar of the SIAC, heading up their secretariat since 2016. She's a Singapore and English qualified lawyer, and before joining the SIAC, she had a varied career in private practice at well-known Singapore law firms, as in-house counsel, and as an assistant registrar at the Supreme Court of Singapore. Ben Hughes is a door tenant with Fountain Court Chambers and a resident at the Arbitration Chambers in Singapore. He combines practice as an independent arbitrator with teaching as an adjunct professor at the National University of Singapore. He's one of the best known arbitrators based in Asia, having been appointed in over 150 cases in a wide range of subject matters. His career has mostly been split between his native United States and South Korea, and he's practiced at both US and Korean law firms. He's been based in Singapore since 2019. Part two of this podcast will be released in June 2021. I'll be back at the end to tell you more about part two. But first, here's my conversation with Smita Menon. So I'm now joined by Smita Menon of Wong Partnership, and we're going to start off by just looking at how Singapore has been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic and in particular how disputes in uh, Singapore have been affected. So Smita, how have your clients reacted to the pandemic and the events of the last 12 months? Generally, it's, it's um, some of them have decided to kick the can down the road because they're relying on government measures as well as legal measures that have been instituted in Singapore to cushion the blow of the fallout from the pandemic. Others have decided to be a bit more proactive and use this sort of breathing room to try and make decisions about whether to terminate contracts, whether to proceed with disputes, or whether to renegotiate their contracts, basically. So a mixed bag. And is that is that depending on the, the particular business sectors in which they're operating? That's actually quite a good observation. It actually is. Uh, some industries which are directly impacted as what we call the first wave of disputes would be those who are directly impacted from COVID. So aviation, retail, real estate, oil and gas construction. And because these industries were the first to be, you know, 
viscerally hit. These are the industries that also had the most support from the government. So it's these industries that you can kind of see how they've reacted in terms of disputes. And it's really been a variety of responses. The one that I think has been the most fruitful has actually not been dispute resolution, but alternative dispute resolution measures. Uh, the government's really encouraged mediation, parties to renegotiate contracts. In fact, we had a very interesting sort of statement from our law minister very early on in the pandemic, basically telling businesses that now's not the time to be all too legalistic and hold parties to their strict legal rights and the legal bargain that was struck and to actually sort of come together as a nation and try and, and be realistic and help each other out because it's an ecosystem. That, that's true. I would say that the funny thing that struck me about lawyering in the last year has been the most common question that we face has has really been on the same thing. And I think it's the same for lawyers all over the world. I think nine out of 10 clients will ask us about force majeure, frustration, and the MAC clauses in contracts, the material adverse change clauses. I just find this, you know, slightly humorous because we look at these clauses very early on in your career and it's always there in the contract and it's never gotten that much attention. Maybe the one-off case here and there where you rely, you know, you rely on doctrines like frustration and so on and so forth. But it's front and center of every lawyer's mind, I think, during this COVID period, because this is what everyone's looking at. And what's interesting about it is, you know, different countries, whether it's civil law, common law, the approach differs on, on how these legal doctrines that excuse performance should apply or how they operate. So I think that's something that is um, quite interesting thing that I've realized. You mentioned, obviously, the contractual solutions for these sorts of situations, force majeure clauses. There are the common law provisions like frustration. And then there are statutory provisions. And you mentioned earlier on that the Singapore government have put in place some measures to provide relief. Can you tell us a little bit more about what those measures look like? So, like I said, it's a combination of legal measures as well as stimulus for the economy. So the, I think the biggest one is a moratorium. So the, the first thing that they imposed was a moratorium against enforcement. So there's no litigation, no arbitration, no winding up, no bankruptcy in respect of what they call scheduled contracts. And what they did was they identified the industries that were most directly hit and um, they protected those contracts. So things like performance bonds and construction contracts, bank loans. I mean, very frankly, for most all businesses, the two big things that would cause them stress when there's distress would be rent to their landlords and their bank loans. So those two areas are really where the measures come in, I think, the most effectively. So businesses can't be wound up. Banks, you don't have to repay your loans. They can't really enforce. You know, interest will not be compounded. So this is all the sort of relief. Guarantors, you can't enforce against guarantors, sureties. The government also installed, well, not installed, but they rolled out special legislation for micro and small businesses to make it easier for them and cheaper for them to sort of restructure themselves or just close shop quietly without having to spend a lot of money and be exposed to personal liability. In terms of um, stimulus, the government also put in a job support scheme where a big chunk of, of the wages of an employer would have to pay would actually be funded by the government. So everyone got this regardless of industry. And the idea was to keep the workforce intact while businesses ride out the pandemic so that we don't have to rebuild 
later on when we get through, get over this this hump. And the time is meant to be for spent reskilling, retraining, encouraging businesses to invest in technology so that when you emerge from COVID, you're different, but you're also ready for the future. That's really been the sort of thinking. So in terms of the specific legal measures, such as the moratorium, how long is that likely to be in place? Because obviously that can't continue indefinitely. There has to be a way out of it. How is that likely to play out, do you think? Yes. So that's a very good point because it is a temporary measure. And a lot of the measures I said, they sort of ended early this year or towards the end of last year. There's still a moratorium on certain things, but most of the temporary measures have pretty much come to an end. They have extended certain measures, but that's very specific to certain types of contracts or certain industries. So the government's point is really they are watching to see how effective things are and how much more protection is needed to help businesses get back on their feet. Did you see a lot of parties coming forward with disputes as moratoria ended or have they kind of continued with the more cooperative approach to resolving the differences with their counterparties? Okay, I'll give you a lawyer's answer. It depends. For the businesses that actually took up what the government was trying to achieve and actually engaged their counterparties and their creditors and their suppliers and their trading parties and their banks early on and basically said, look, I've looked at my business. Realistically, this is the kind of revenue I think I can make after we come out of this. These are the terms that I can perform without strangling myself as a business. And at that point in time, these counterparties would have to listen because they can't enforce anyway. They can't start arbitration. The, 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 so the playing field, the bargaining power is sort of balanced. And for those companies that started early and they've had six to nine months to have these conversations, by the time we got to 2021, a lot of these negotiations are very advanced or agreements have already been reached. So for those, life continues without them really getting involved in many disputes or the disputes have pretty much narrowed in scope and it's only one or two small things or certain aspects. But for the others that sort of kick the can, there's no sort of interest or political will on contracting parties with higher bargaining power and good contracts or a stronger position of the contracts to basically negotiate now. So that, so they have then moved towards either bringing proceedings or sort of enforcement action as they become free to do so? Yeah. Starting, they're getting ready. Yeah. And so, I mean, is it fair to say that the disputes that are flowing from COVID-19 are really only just getting going now rather than uh, there having been a, a wave of it already? I would say that it's probably getting going now. I mean, not all contracts were covered last year. So for those contracts that weren't covered, I mean, there were, those disputes just continued. But for the rest, I think they're pretty much launching now. I mean, there was quite a, there was an increase in disputes last year. If you look at the statistics from the Singapore Arbitration Centre, International Arbitration Centre, and just generally at other arbitral institutions like the ICC. But I think the idea is that this year, there'll probably be more than last year. So I would say more the latter. You you mentioned the uptick in cases at the SIAC and some of the other arbitral institutions. Is that a reflection of um, perhaps the a difference between what's happening locally in Singapore between businesses and what's happening across the region. I mean, a lot of those cases will be international arbitrations. Yeah, absolutely right. In fact, all of them are international arbitration cases. I, I think domestic cases, there's been a, a big decline because while a lot of Singapore businesses do have 
cross-border trading partners. The bulk of the measures were obviously, you would go first to protecting Singaporeans and very local domestic businesses because they're the ones that are the most vulnerable. So you're right. It's become pretty common in the last 12 months for hearings to be held online. We're talking today via Zoom, and that has become almost the norm for arbitral hearings. What has happened for those um, court proceedings that have been ongoing in the in the meantime during the pandemic? Well, I'm still waiting for the cat video hearing to happen. It hasn't happened for me yet, <laughs> but I, I'm still hoping. But jokes aside, it's gone very well, actually. Um, I think Singapore, it's funny because for many, many years, our courts have been a lot faster than I would say the practitioners because our courts are very pro-technology and our Supreme Court building, which is a relatively new building, was designed with with advances in technology in mind. So the infrastructure has always been there, but it's the lawyers who are holding it back because most of us are troglodytes. And so, you know, there was this huge passive resistance towards moving fully to take advantage of the technology potential that we have. So I think COVID was possibly a blessing in disguise for our courts because they could then, everyone had no choice, right? So we're now using the really making full use of the potential that we've already got in our system. And it's proven to be much easier now that everyone's been dragged, kicking and screaming into the light insofar as the lawyers are concerned. Everyone's realized that actually, you know, this is really convenient and it's very good. So most of the hearings now in Singapore are on Zoom. Even trials are conducted over Zoom. We we did face some international criticism and drama last year when I think one a very serious case, uh, the sentencing was handed down over Zoom. It was a death penalty case. So I think that rubbed people the wrong way in other countries. But in Singapore, it just shows how everyone's just adapted very efficiently to the new normal. And how much of that do you think will remain once all of the restri- well, if all of the restrictions go, we don't know quite what's going to happen in the next few years. But but when things really do open up around the world, will Singapore continue with at least in part online hearings? Definitely, I think that the courts are never going to let us go back to the dark ages, as far as they are concerned. They're going to keep building on this and pushing us to do more. Like I'm just just give you an example. I think my last hearing before COVID. I still remember the parties were all grumbling because the judge had insisted, as all the judges do, on hyperlinked bundles. And we were like, oh, there's so much work. Do we have to? But everything has to be hyperlinked for our hearings. Your submissions, your affidavits, your I mean, your evidence, your documents, your authorities, so that when you read one set of submissions, every sort of reference is hyperlinked straight away. And it was always such a pain to do. Uh, and I remember thinking, oh, you know, can we just... No, we all don't want to do it. But then now it's just the norm and there's no way the court's ever going to let us get off with not doing it anymore. Where I think it might change is the little bit of um, resistance that's there and will continue being there is when it comes to trials. I think uh, lawyers don't like to cross-examine witnesses remotely. Somehow the impact is just lost. And um, I do hear that grumble still continue. When we resume as much as possible, I think for trials where there's cross-examination, I think that will still be in open court physically. 
Though now I've noticed that what the judges are doing or what the court, sorry, the registry is doing is not having everyone in the courtroom. So if you've got like three or four parties to the case, they only really have the main people submitting to the judge or carrying out the cross-examination physically there and everyone else participates on Zoom, which I think is quite a good compromise, a sort of hybrid virtual setup. Uh, let's turn to a slightly different topic now, which is the development of Singapore law. And one of the things I've noticed over the years I've been in Singapore is obviously Singapore has pushed itself as a dispute resolution venue, both on the arbitration and the litigation side. But we've also seen a number of efforts to promote Singapore law itself as a as a choice of governing law for contracts. How do you see that developing and how has it developed in the last few years? I mean, I'd answer the question in two ways. The treatment and arbitration is different in the sense that the way it's developed and how it's been promoted is different from everything else. And maybe I'll just explain the arbitration angle first. So in Singapore, I feel that if you look at England as an example, it was really English law being so strong that made England a very attractive seat, London an attractive seat. For us, we've taken a sort of reverse approach whereby we're leading with the seat. So because Singapore as a seat is attractive, you know, we, we're neutrals, well-connected, we've got Maxwell Chambers, everything's easy, there's no tax, you know, foreign lawyers can come here, there's no protectionism with regard to rights of audience, that sort of thing. We've made Singapore as attractive a seat as possible, and that's easy for us to do because Singaporeans are rarely parties to the major contracts because we're just too small. And so we're seen as neutral, sort of in between East and West, and even within Asia, we're seen as neutral. So... We use Singapore as a seat to sort of promote the use of Singapore law because I realize lots of clients when it comes to putting, you know, these midnight clauses into their contracts, they don't care so much about the governing law as long as it's something that's established. But I have noticed that clients like to see consistency between the seat. And so it's easy for us once we get sort of like get the punters in on Singapore as a seat it's then easy for us to sell Singapore law as a governing law because it's not too, it's steeped in common law, English common law. So it's not alien to users in ex-common law countries, a lot of which are in Asia. And for the civil law countries that are in Asia as well, Singapore law is not seen as too rigid the way the English law sometimes is. And that brings me to my other point, which is for the rest of contracts, the rest of other branches of practice generally, what we've done is we've tried to align ourselves, keep to established principles as much as possible, but have some divergence where we feel it's an opportunity to do so. The difficulties, I think, with English law is because it's so steeped. It's been there for hundreds of years. It's very hard to have any major shift or change. But Singapore law has only been around for such a short period of time. And we aren't weighted down by that history. And so what we can do is look at how England has done it, Australia has done it, you know, France, America, and pick what we feel is a modern and effective approach that actually reflects commerce today. And I think that, I mean, you talk about picking things from different parts of the world. And I think Singapore sometimes does that with statutory provisions, look at what's been done elsewhere and see how, how it can be adapted for use here. But um, in terms of the development of the common law, uh, the, the, the Singapore courts are, are 
very interested in looking around the world I, is my my sense when you read judgments of the Court of Appeal. I mean, one of the recent decisions was uh, Denker and Saraya on, uh, on the penalty clause rule. And, that, and in that case, you see a, a survey of England, Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, Canada, the full range of the major Commonwealth uh, jurisdictions, and then Singapore alighting on its own decision as to how to take it forward. In any case that we do in Singapore, we always have to sort of submit on what are the latest developments in that area internationally so that we really engage how other courts have looked at it and how stress tested basically as much as possible. So it's not just with the narrow confines of past Singapore cases. That another big consideration for us as a policy is that whatever law we develop has to be usable. So something to keep Singapore competitive is our law must facilitate business. So anything that seemed to be, you know, the courts are always reluctant to intervene in, in parties' contracts, more so I think in Singapore than in other countries, because we are a services centre. That is the main driver of our economy. So it has to work. It has to be something that works for businessmen and for businesses. Well, that, that's quite an interesting observation how Singapore's economic positioning really is sort of driving the uh, judicial philosophy and perhaps fits in with the with the way in which the legal system in Singapore is uh, serving the community and the business community rather than the other way around as uh, one sometimes gets the feeling from some some jurisdictions. I would agree with that absolutely. So I'm now joined by Delphine Ho of the SIAC and uh, Ben Hughes, an independent arbitrator, to talk about arbitration in Singapore and in Asia more broadly. Delphine, can we start by looking at the SIAC's results in 2020, which uh, have seen a remarkable uptick in cases. You've had quite consistent growth over the last 10 years, but then there's been a jump to over 1,000 cases in 2020. Can you tell us a little bit about the development of the SIC over the last 10 years and why it is that we've seen this very substantial jump from the region of 400 and something cases in the last three years to over 1,000 uh, last year? Well, we weren't really expecting it. I mean, as the cases grew, as the number of filings we received last year increased across the year, I think everyone was slightly panicking and looking, where is this going to stop? I think prior to 2020, the growth is, was really quite consistent, as you say. Um, I think last year was really, 2020 was really an unusual year for us. I suspect, at least that this is this is my speculation, I think that the, the cases in 2020 were really spurred by the economic outlook that we saw um, in late 2019. Um, that was when we really saw, I think, people were, were the economy was getting a bit, bit uncertain and we saw more people filing cases. And I think this trend continued into 2020. Added to the fact that there was COVID and even more uncertainty as to how the economy would do, how trade would be doing, I suspect that there were a lot of protective filings that took place a lot of uh, cases being commenced, I think not only just in arbitration, but probably in the courts as well, where um, parties were just trying to preserve their positions. The other possible reason is really that, as you know, we introduced consolidation provisions in the SIC rules back in 2016. And obviously no one likes new rules um, and it takes some time for new rules, to people to get used to new rules, to get to, used to the new processes under the new rules. And I think really consolidation is one of those processes which allow parties to 
pursue related claims in a more economical and efficient manner. So we did see, I think, a number of consolidation cases in 2020 as well, which then led to to the overall caseload. If you ask me whether or not it's going to continue in 2021, I I really don't know. I think um, there there really is a lot of uncertainty for many people right now, for many uh, businesses, for many industries. Everyone's just really watching and waiting to see what happens with COVID this year and whether, whether in countries like Singapore, which are so dependent on, on the international market and trade and, and businesses coming in, whether or not that will show an uptick in the rest of 2021. Looking at the breakdown of the cases, we can see that there's a jump of around about 600 cases or so in the trade sector, which accounts for broadly in line with the with the uptick of cases overall. Looking at the broader picture and the other cases you have, construction, maritime, corporate, commercial, and quite a group of others, which are more in line or with what you've seen in previous years. What does that tell us about the, the, the sort of disputes that you get in Singapore and Asia, the, the breakdown that we get from the SIC figures over the years? I mean, Singapore is a big shipping and trade hub. And I think that influences the choice of using either Singapore law, Singapore as a seat, or, or SIAC, um, insofar as trade cases are concerned. Um, as I said, I think the economic outlook in 2019 and 2020 has spurred a lot more activity from uh, not just from pursuing a claim front, but also from a protectionist uh, uh, position. So I think all that really has contributed to the uptick in trade cases. Insofar as, say, your construction claims and other claims, at least in Singapore, I think uh, there was legislation that get, got um, implemented to uh, delay claims uh, being put, from being put forward in certain industries. So that may have impacted some of the, the other industry sector performances. Do you get a sense that in some of the other sectors that there's a wave of disputes that may be about to... Uh... Uh, turn into formal proceedings over the next 12 months because of some of the legislation and the economic impacts? Yeah, I think some cases are definitely going to come in. But I think the other side of an economic downturn or economic uncertainty is there is more reluctance of a party to really pursue a claim. Because at the end of the day, that requires a certain amount of cash flow, that requires a certain, dedicating a certain amount of, of money and I get the sense that there is some reluctance um, to really put money there rather than put money into something that will make more money. So yes, I do see cases coming, but whether or not they eventually end up in, say, a full merits hearing, I think that is probably the bigger question. And looking at where the cases are coming from, so geographically, you provide a in your annual report a breakdown of that. And, and we can see this year, as has been the case for several years now, India is the top foreign user, 690 foreign users. The US has jumped into second place this year, 545. China in third, 195. Those have all been quite big users over the last several years. What can we learn from um, where the cases are coming from? I think insofar as the Indian users are concerned, that probably is really due to the legwork that SIAC did, uh, that we did in our earlier years, uh, pounding and ground, reaching out to Indian users and generally introducing SIAC's uh, services and what we do to, to Indian users. And I think the uptick in Indian users over the last five, eight years is really reflective of that early work that we did. I think also I get the sense that there is also 
more comfort in using administered arbitration rather than ad hoc arbitration. The Historically, I think the, the model that was preferred in India was uh, ad hoc arbitration, but that also has slowly changed. And I think that has also contributed to the, the rise of Indian users in Singapore uh, at SIAC. I mean, the US trend is really quite interesting because I think in the past, it was really the U.S. users were 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 there on the list more because there were um, Asian outposts were then involved in Asian contracts and 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 therefore SIAC arbitration. Um, we're starting to see directly the the U.S. user rather than through a corporate holding. It's difficult to really identify one reason for that. Um, as I said, a lot of it has to do with the trade and investments and really how business flows have been have been operating in, in the last few years. And one of the other th- interesting things I thought when I looked at the statistics of where the users are from is both India and China, the majority, and in, in India, the, the vast majority of the users are claimants and the minority uh, are respondents. In the U.S., it's the other way around. It's interesting because it's not the stereotype that one might think of of international arbitration. But is that something that is uh, a one-off this year or is that reflect a broader trend, would you say, Delphine? I personally feel that arbitration has really started to gain a lot of traction uh, with a lot of Asian users. And you're right. I think in the earlier years, we saw a lot more Asian parties being the respondent and more Western parties as the claimant. And we're seeing, seeing. I don't think that trend is being reversed. I think it's it's more of a situation where more and more Asian parties are becoming claimants rather than more and more Western parties are becoming respondents. I think this is a sign of a growing sophistication of the international arbitration market in Asia. We're seeing a lot more Vietnamese parties, as I see. And historically, Vietnamese parties were, were often the respondents because of, again, because of the way how the business works, um, how the investments work. But we're seeing Vietnamese parties on the uptick as claimants. So I think what we see with India is really a more a more advanced stage of that development of uh, international arbitration here. And Ben, is that consistent with your experience? I mean, you've been in Asia for many years now. Have you seen a change in that respect as to the role of, or the respective role of, say, Western parties and Asian parties? Definitely, definitely. I think there was a trend, I think, in the past in which Western investors were investing in, in Asian jurisdictions and then bringing claims in those jurisdictions or in, in, in Singapore against um, parties in those jurisdictions. And there was a reluctance, I think, on the part of some Asian parties to commence an arbitration because that really meant the end of the commercial relationship between the parties. You know, it was very much the case in Korea, for example. Once you cross that threshold of filing a lawsuit or an arbitration, then, you know, that's really a sign that the relationship is completely beyond repair. Um, but now you see, I think, a much more nuanced approach. And, and you see Asian parties, for example, commencing an arbitration for the reasons that Delphine described, to preserve their position or to commence uh, negotiations. Or, you know, sometimes to, to press their claim to the end. It, it's just a, a, a more, I think, sophisticated use of the dispute resolution mechanisms that are available to them. And I think that trend will increase. The other aspect of this, of course, is that the Asian parties are now very often the investors and, you know, in the position that some of the Western parties were in the past. And so I think this will balance itself out uh, going forward. 
and broadening things out a little bit and ben as i said you you used to be based up in korea for for many years you've now been based in singapore for uh some time what do you see singapore's place as in the arbitration landscape around asia well i would rephrase that i would ask the question what is singapore's place in the arbitration landscape globally because i think it has become and will increasingly be a global center for international commercial arbitration and perhaps even investment arbitration. Uh, like you see, for example, London uh, and Paris and other places as, as international arbitration hubs. I mean, I think Singapore is clearly now one of the global centers for international arbitration. I think the reason why it has become the center of arbitration in Asia, um, so by extension, one of the leading arbitration centers in the world is that you know it's it's, it's trusted by users. It's it's free of corruption. It has the infrastructure that's required. It has a very modern you know arbitration legislation, the International Arbitration Act. The courts are are trusted and very sophisticated in their arbitration jurisprudence. And then you know, and that's only that's only been improving over time. And you know. Other jurisdictions in the region have not uh, had the same, I think, benefit of that sort of wise stewardship, if I, if I can use that term. We see parties from Asian jurisdictions coming to Singapore to resolve their disputes, sometimes even between themselves. And I, so, for example, I've been uh, appointed as arbitrator in cases between two Indian parties. Uh, seated in Singapore under the CIAC rules. Interestingly, I've also been an arbitrator in a case between two Japanese parties seated in Singapore and under the CIAC rules. So, and conducted in English. So, you know, some surprising, you know, cases that, that, that pop up in Singapore because everyone in the region trusts this jurisdiction. It's quite interesting what you say there about hearing cases where, say, two Japanese or two Indian parties come to Singapore. And, and it reminds me something of what happens in the English commercial court, where you get a lot of cases that have no particular connection with England. And obviously, in recent years, there have been Russian billionaires, for example, fighting it out over entirely Russian disputes in the English courts. And so do you think Singapore is turning into that sort of forum in this part of the world? I think so. I think both in terms of arbitration and, and perhaps in the future in terms of the uh, commercial court that's also been set up here. And I would just note that, you know, this uptick that we've seen in Singapore uh, has not been replicated in other jurisdictions around Asia. I think 2020 is definitely unique, as Delphine pointed out, and I, I know there were a lot of cases that were related to each other that were you know, consolidated, again, as Delphi mentioned, so that, that also sort of accounts for some of the uptick last year. But Singapore is unique in the region to have this kind of increase in its, in its caseload of arbitrations. Do you think that disputes are going to be entirely focused in Singapore? Is there room for another major seat? Hong Kong historically has um, had a um, significant number of arbitrations. The Hong Kong International Arbitration Centre is highly rated, Korea, you have the KCAB, Japan, you have the JCAA. What, what do you see the, the position being around uh, the rest of the region? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think there is room for one or even more additional arbitration centers around the region. You can see that in Europe, 
And I think that's a very healthy thing. I think Hong Kong will increasingly be a center for China-related disputes as it becomes more and more integrated into China. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a, a reality. It's still an excellent place to arbitrate, and I think it would be regarded as one of the best places to arbitrate in China. And their competition increasingly will not be Singapore. It will be other arbitral centers in China, such as Shanghai or Beijing. I think there's room also in the Asia-Pacific region for a civil law jurisdiction to develop as a leading international arbitration center. And, you know, Korea or Japan would be excellent candidates for such a center. Already you see a lot of improvements in both jurisdictions. Uh, JCAA is currently revising their rules, uh, and I think they've made a lot of progress in, in very recent past. Korea has a longer history, I think, of uh, development and use of international commercial arbitration. There's some barriers they need to overcome, some obstacles. Um, one is, is language, and that, you know, Korean and Japanese are not widely spoken languages outside those jurisdictions, but I think that can be overcome, for example, with a, with a specialized court that uh, hears arbitration-related uh, applications or enforcement uh, and setting aside applications, but they have the infrastructure. Korea in particular, I think, has uh, extremely sophisticated jurisprudence with respect to uh, international arbitration. So I think there's a lot of potential there for um, a center of arbitration in a civil law jurisdiction for parties who may feel more comfortable uh, in that environment. Another thing that we have seen over the last decade, globally really, in addition to increasing numbers of arbitration cases in many places is real procedural innovation in arbitration rules. And this includes things such as expedited procedures, emergency arbitrators, consolidation and joinder that uh, Delphine mentioned earlier early on. Let's look at those and how they've been used. And Delphine, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about the expedited procedure and the emergency arbitrator process that they, they've now been in place for about 10 years in, in the SIAC rules. How often are they used and in what ways are they used? Expedited procedure is very popular. I think, I mean, it was one of the responses um, that the institution came up with uh, to respond to the criticism, the growing criticism as to the time taken with arbitration awards. And we really see the bulk of the EP applications are made under the first limb, so made under the sixth or, or previously $5 million limb. And less, so that maybe takes up about possibly up to 85% of all EP applications that we receive. The remainder is split, more, it tilts more in favor to the second limb, which is by party agreement. Um, the number of cases that we get under the third limb, which is the exceptional urgency, is much lower. That could also be because of the availability of emergency arbitration, because the truth of the matter is that if that dispute or the issue is so urgent that, or, or of such exceptional urgency that you need an award quickly, then perhaps the alternative methodology to achieving what you want, at least at an interim stage, would be emergency arbitrator. So I think that's really how the EP applications have been playing out over the years. Emergency arbitrator is one of those things that I think when it was first introduced, the, the response was, what is this thing that you've come up with? And I mean, we are fortunate in Singapore because of the express recognition of emergency arbitrator decisions in the legislation. So I think that has helped 
to uh, spur the the uptick in in cases and the acceptance of of emergency arbitration as a procedure. I mean, as more and more institutions have introduced emergency processes in their rules, you see that the the acceptability of emergency arbitrator as a process and the decisions of emergency arbitrators um, has really gone up over the years, even in jurisdictions where there may not be an express recognition of uh, uh, the role of an emergency arbitrator, it is still possible to actually get some method of enforcing that EA decision. It just may not be as straightforward uh, as it is in Singapore because we have the legislative framework. And as you say, Singapore, Hong Kong have that framework. I think Malaysia also has specific reference to emergency arbitrators. That's still quite rare. And so in jurisdictions where there isn't express reference, what, what what have you seen parties do in terms of getting their EA awards or orders enforced? So what is typically done is that the, the party seeking to enforce the EA order would commence fresh proceedings in that jurisdiction and essentially use the EA's order either as evidence or, 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 or at least a persuasive uh, of a means to persuade that the judge hearing that, that application to make a similar order. So that's typically how it's done. And Ben, you've been involved in emergency arbitration. You've sat as an emergency arbitrator. What's your experience been of the process? It works. I mean, I, I think I've done about 10 emergency arbitrations now. They've all worked. They've come to a decision within the time limit. The decision has been respected by the parties. And if not, it's been enforced in the courts. In Singapore, of course, that's relatively easy. Even before there's an emergency arbitration, if you try to go get emergency relief from a court in Singapore under the International Arbitration Act, they will say no, because it's TIAC is capable of appointing an emergency arbitrator, so go away and do the emergency arbitration. So I've seen an uptick in the number of EA applications because of that. Parties now, I think, are very aware of how they work, and they're not the least bit reluctant to use it. And I think it's been a very useful tool in the sort of international arbitration toolbox here in Singapore. And it's interesting because you mentioned the fact that the Singapore courts will say go away and go to your emergency arbitrator generally if you uh, approach them for interim relief and i think that's interesting because a lot of the of the arbitration rules siac icc they often have a clause in there which say this is not intended to prevent you going going to court what do you make of that development i i don't think that the singapore rule is intended to prevent you from going to court in appropriate circumstances uh, but the point is the parties have agreed to arbitration and that means that where you are able to get the relief you need in the context of arbitration you should do that and you know they still are available uh, to the parties where for some reason the arbitral institution or the tribunal if it's already constituted is unable to provide the relief that you're seeking for example if you need an injunction against a third party then, you know, that's something that the tribunal probably cannot do for you, so you have access to the courts. So I, 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 don't, I don't think there's a contradiction there. I mean, one of, the thing, one of the things in the Singapore legislation, like the English Arbitration Act, is a provision saying expressly that, that the court won't grant interim measures where there is an arbitral body that's able to act effectively. And so that becomes the touchstone and perhaps is a peculiarity of England and Singapore, which have that in their in their legislation. Let's turn now to some of the other procedural innovations. Looking at the figures, it's quite clear consolidation is used 
quite a lot more frequently than joined. That's been in your rules at the SIC since 2016, 248 consolidation applications, but only 36 joinder applications in that in that time. Why why do you think consolidation is favoured over joinder as a mechanism of in, introducing additional parties into into proceedings? I think consolidation is really much more straightforward. It is much easier to identify disputes um, or underlying agreements which have a nexus to each other. It is also, I think, better received in the sense that if a case is successfully consolidated, whether prior to constitution or post-constitution, there's a direct impact on the deposits that are paid. So I think is strategically and economically, it's something that parties are much more prepared to accept because it has a positive impact on how they can run a case. Joinder, I think, is often more difficult because that party to be joined, um, it's not always clear whether that party to be joined is, say, prima facie bound by the arbitration agreement or should even be part of the process in the first place. I mean, if you have a situation where the joint party has consented to be to be part of the arbitration, that's fine and good. Um, but as you know, once people start fighting and, and, and dragging third parties in, no one really agrees to anything um, and it will be fought out. Um, at least at the pre-constitution stage, it is sometimes more difficult for the SIC court to make a decision on a joinder because sometimes the, the relationship with the joint party with everyone else is, is really a very factual inquiry. And the SIC court's not quite in, in the right position to really uh, pursue that factual inquiry. Whereas if the application is made before a tribunal, then a tribunal is really better placed to say, yes, actually, this joint party should be party to this arbitration or should not be a party to this arbitration. Do you get most of the applications for joinder or for consolidation before the tribunals are appointed? Or do you get a significant number of them after tribunals have been appointed, which then get heard by the tribunals themselves, I think, under the SIC rules? Mm. Uh, consolidation, um, more often than not, it's done before constitution. And as I said, that's really, I think, because there's a direct impact on how deposits are calculated and how, how much deposits parties have to pay. In the event that they are unsuccessful at the pre-constitution stage, then there may be a second application later on uh, towards the tribunal. We also see cases where at the point of time the arbitration has commenced, there's really only one arbitration and it's only later on that, that subsequent proce uh, processes get commenced. So those, again, may well be made towards uh, towards tribunal. Joinder, I think it's equally split. I don't really think that it leans one way or another. I think because joinder tends to be a lot more fact-specific and more distinctive, there's less of a pattern to the applications. Then turning, I think, to the last of the major innovations that we saw in 2016 in the SIC rules, there's um, the early dismissal procedure. And this one, I think, it's probably fair to say this is maybe a little bit more controversial than some than some of the others, and a bit more unusual in its operation. Delphine, can you tell us a little bit about the usage so far over the last four or five years? I think when we first introduced it in 2016, I remember um, people tiptoeing around it and saying that we're not touching this with a 10-foot pole. What is this nonsense that, that, that SIC has come up with? But I think that, again, with time, it, it has become more accepted. We see both claimants and respondents using it uh, in respect of claims and counterclaims. Sometimes we also see it used similar to what I mean, for, for common law practitioners, like an Order 14, Rule 12, preliminary decision on a particular area or preliminary decision on an area of law, which helps to maybe trim the fat 
of an existing case and trim it down so that whatever goes to the final merits hearing is a, is a much more compact package. I think the use of, of early dismissal has generally been quite innovative. I think when we put it in the SIAC rules, we didn't really expect all the permutations that it's been used, but I think counsel have been quite uh, creative when it comes to using it to, as I said, trim down the fat of a case. And I, I see that much more often than, say, an entire case or defence being struck out um, on the basis of an early dismissal application. I see. And it's interesting, the, the SIC rule, Rule 29, was, I think, inspired, and some of the language was certainly inspired by what we see in the ICSID rules. So it allows for the early dismissal of a claim or a defence on the basis that that claim or defence is manifestly without legal merit or manifestly outside the jurisdiction of the tribunal. So one big difference between the SIC approach and the, and the ICSID approach is that it applies to both claims and defences. And you also introduced the express reference to outside the jurisdiction. Is there any pattern in what you've seen as to whether it's been used mainly by claimants or mainly by defendants and mainly on the first limb manifestly without legal merit or outside jurisdiction? Mostly, I, I've seen it used by both parties, both claimant and respondent. I think the almost all the cases that I can re recall off the top of my head have gone under the first limb, so manifestly outside. Uh, sorry, without manifestly without merit. I don't actually remember a case um, where the outside of jurisdiction limb was invoked. And I think I have some thoughts about how the the rule 29 that limb of rule 29 interact with rule 28 <laughs> which i haven't quite reconciled myself with right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and ben as i mentioned this was well, the, the approach taken by the siac to this is slightly different to what we see in other arbitral rules isn't it so the hkic and stockholm have early it's a summary procedures the icc hasn't introduce anything specific at all. How do you see this fitting in with the approach of, of other other institutions? Well, I, I like the approach that SIAC has taken, and I think this is one instance in which SIAC has sort of taken a leadership role in among commercial arbitral institutions. I think maybe Stockholm was first, actually, but they took a slightly different approach. I mean, Stockholm approach is really related to issues uh, rather than claims and defenses. So I, I like the approach that SIAC has taken, except I will say that I agree with Delphine that this manifestly outside the jurisdiction of, of, of the tribunal is really redundant of a party's ability to challenge the jurisdiction of the tribunal anyway. So I, I'm not sure what purpose this serves. And uh, I would probably uh, take that out maybe in the next revision of the rules. But no one listens to me, so uh, we'll see what happens. The ICC had not included an early dismissal provision, but then after SIAC published its rules, the ICC clarified that this had always been available under its rules, under uh, the powers of the tribunal, under Article 22 of their rules, which powers the tribunal to take whatever steps it deems necessary or appropriate for the efficient conduct of the arbitration. And interestingly, I was appointed as, as an arbitrator in an ICC arbitration right after this note came out. And, you know, parties had not been making early dismissal applications because there was no provision in the rules and it wasn't really clear that this was available. And after the note came out, there was immediately this application, which I granted for dismissal of, of 
of the claims of the claimant in that case. Uh, and the parties in that case referred not only to the ICC note, but also to the SEAC rules, not of course as binding, but as, as guidance or as reference. The HPIC has phrased this as um, an early determination procedure. And I think that's really more along the lines of a bifurcation sort of procedure, which you can address certain issues, as uh, Delphine was saying, you know, get rid of certain issues, or you can do more what the what the SIAC rules envision, which is you know dismiss a claim or defense. Uh, and they also have this uh, sort of maybe more clear provision that as as a grounds for the dismissal, saying that even if you assume all of the arguments or the facts or, or, or legal arguments of the party are, are correct, you, they still would not have a, a case. You still couldn't give them an award in their favor. And if that's the case, you should dismiss um, dismiss the claim of defense. They still, they also retain this language, which again, I think came from Ixit, about the jurisdiction of the tribunal, which I really don't think belongs in an early determination or early dismissal provision, but um, I think this is something that will work itself out over time. I mean, one of the things that strikes me when you look at the SIAC rules compared to the Hong Kong rules is the SIAC rules focus on dismissing claims or defenses, whereas the Hong Kong rules refer to points of law or fact, dealing with points of law or fact. How significant do you think that difference is as a uh, in practice as a, as a test or as a, a, an approach? I mean, I think they're aiming for the same thing, but, you know, the, the SIAC provision requires you to dispense with the claim or the defense, whereas the HKC procedure is aimed at, at specific facts or, or points of law, which may or may not fully dispose of, of the defense or, or, the, or the claim. So I think, in a way, um, the SIAC provision is a bit more robust, requires perhaps a bit more complete analysis of the claim for defense and also maybe requires the tribunal to be a bit more brave uh, in coming to its conclusions because, you know, the reason why some tribunals are a bit timid about early dismissal is because you are dismissing the claim or defense very early in the proceedings and there's always the concern that you will be left open to an argument that you did not provide due process in so doing. You didn't give the parties a full opportunity or a reasonable opportunity to present their case. But if, if I mean, the word is manifestly without merit. So if, if a claim is manifestly without merit, then I don't think there's the tribunal should have any hesitation in dismissing it. So this year we've had a very substantial number of cases, a uh, very substantial increase in cases here in in Singapore. Uh, thinking about the future, Delphine and Ben, what do you think are going to be the next developments for Singapore and Asian arbitration more generally? Uh, ben, do you want to go first on this one? I, I think the trend will only continue as more and more, more of the world economy is based in Asia and Asia takes a larger role in international trade. This will be a trend that continues, and I think Singapore will benefit from that as the leading center of um, commercial arbitration in Asia. It's, uh, in many ways, the Switzerland of Asia. It's viewed as very neutral and very reliable. But I think the, the benefits will also flow to other jurisdictions in Asia more broadly. 
and we'll see more arbitrations in Hong Kong that are China related. I mean, China's role in the international economy, the global economy, I think cannot be uh, overstated. And jurisdictions like Korea and Japan, I think we'll also see as a general trend an increase in their uh, caseload as well, especially if they're able to, to develop themselves as a reliable jurisdiction, a civil law jurisdiction in the region where parties who don't speak those languages or maybe a little bit less familiar with those legal systems uh, can feel comfortable in. So I think the trend will be uh, continuing upwards, but in particular, I think for Singapore and for SIAC. And Delphine, what do you see over the next few years? I mean, in the short term, I'm not sure we can replicate last year's caseload, but I think Ben's right that overall, I think there will be, the pie will just keep getting bigger. How that pie is divided up amongst the various institutions, ad hoc arbitration, that's a bit harder to say. I think one of the things that, that came out of, of all the lockdowns in 2020 is that people realized that arbitration may not be as expensive as one thought because arbitration pivoted easily to virtual hearings, remote hearings, because we had already been using such this kind of technology for, for CMCs. But as more and more people get used to, to having a full merits hearing conducted uh, through, through platforms like Zoom, I think it, it means that arbitration is a lot more accessible for people, leaving aside possible like internet connectivity issues. And with that, I think there will be more willingness of people to actually initiate arbitration, pursue arbitration, and therefore uh, go towards um, arbitration hearings and awards. I think it's, it's, it's really quite exciting because the 20, late 2019, 2020 has really upended what we thought was the, that the development and growth trends um, all around the world. And I, I, I do think that Asia stands to, as a whole stands to benefit from the overall shift um, towards Asia. Uh, and Delvin, you talked there about the phenomenon of arbitrations going online. Uh, what do you think the balance is going to be then once we can travel again, which at some point we will be able to do, how much do you think is going to stay online and how much do you think is going to revert back to physical hearings? Do you have a view on that? I think that as long as, if it's going to be a high value claim, if parties are fighting over hundreds of millions of dollars, the, the cost of, of an arbitrator traveling and the per diem isn't going to make a difference. But for a user, for someone whose dispute is within six digits or, or even seven digits, I think it then becomes, the, the expenses become a bigger factor. Because not only are you talking about tribunal's fees, you're also talking about potentially having counsel travel, witnesses travel, and that adds up to quite a bit. The other thing is, I think, Air travel is probably going to remain fairly expensive for a while. I mean, the capacity has dropped quite significantly. And I think that is also a fact. That, that and co general connectivity, because when capacity drops, your, your flights drop, and, and you may not have the same kind of connectivity we're used to from before. Someone said this to me, um, I think, in once the Singapore lockdowns uh, got lifted and, and we managed to catch up. And he told me that the, the thing... Really, virtual hearings, remote hearings, cross-examination really isn't a big deal for arbitration because it is not as common in arbitration for evidence or, or, or decision to turn on witness testimony. You don't have the bank table and say, you are lying to me. You, know? you don't really get that in arbitration. A lot of it is about documents. And when you look at it in that way, 
virtual hearings is really something that's quite appropriate for most arbitrations. So yeah, I, I, I see it sticking. I actually see it probably either being, I think there will be equal, if not more virtual hearings compared to in-person hearings. Part of that is also, the other factor to that is also, you don't know what is really going to be happening while, while vaccinations are picking up. You don't know how long it's going to last. You don't know whether there's going to be a resurgence. Some jurisdictions may, may prefer to be a bit more, in Singapore parlance, uh, kiasu, and, and prefer to close their borders much faster and keep it closed to prevent the, the domestic population from, from getting uh, sick. So I think that's really something that we can't really predict. And Ben, what about your experience of virtual hearings? I mean, uh, as counsel, I've I, I found it surprisingly good actually o- online. There's obviously some things you have to adapt to, and it can be quite tiring. But what what have you found as this perspective, sitting as an arbitrator in virtual hearings? Well, I've had about twenty of these by now, and they work. I think I was a bit of a doubter actually at the beginning, but I have to say they work very well, and I think we're never going back to practices of before. I think one of the concerns at the outset was uh, about witness examination and the ability of witnesses to be coached while they're uh, being examined virtually because they could receive messages or they could have someone in the room signaling them. And I think that's turned out to be a red herring. You know, people are, um, first of all, basically honest, but more importantly, if you're looking at someone on the screen in a cross-examination virtually, you have a much more up-close and personal view of their face than you could possibly have live. I mean, it would be socially unacceptable for me to look at you as closely as I can see you on the screen. And it's very obvious if someone is trying to read something or or getting any coaching, it's very easy to, to do a sweep of the room to see anyone's there i mean they're very it's very easy to manage this issue so i think that has turned out to be um, something that initially people have a lot of concerns about but it's turned out to be um, i think really rather easily addressed i'm about to start a three-week hearing which is entirely online virtual hearing and if you can imagine there's two law firms on each side probably 20 lawyers who would be flying around witnesses and experts and tribunal members. And, you know, that, that's a significant expense. Uh, and that will be saved uh, by having this, this hearing virtually. Now, in this particular case, the amount of dispute, I think, would justify an in-person hearing if the parties wanted that. But I don't think we'll ever go back to the days of flying a witness around the world to come and give two hours of testimony. So I think what we'll see is even if we go back to basically in-person hearings where the tribunal and counsel are sitting together with party representatives and some witnesses and experts, you'll see a hybrid hearing in which many witnesses are are going to be examined virtually. I think when, um, just to add on, I think when the lockdown started last year and and the pivot to to remote hearings or virtual hearings um, took off, there was a lot of unfamiliarity with it because most most people, most counsel, they're used to having a physical hearing. That's one part of it. The other part of it is, again, um, my husband's an in-house counsel. So one of the questions that in-house counsel um, have is, so they're not comfortable with it themselves. So how do you, how, as, a, as a lawyer, how do you explain 
remote hearings to your clients and how do you explain what the safeguards are and all that. And this is where I have to put in an SIAC plug because we, we came up. So because of the conversations I was having with, with in-house counsel, including my husband, we decided to come up with this checklist guide, you know, because we know that as counsel, sometimes it's impossible to convince your client otherwise, unless you have some checklist to show them and go, okay, this is the issue and this is how you address it. This is the issue and this is how you address it. So when we thought about issuing a guide, when everyone else was issuing a guide, we decided, okay, let's focus on how to manage your client. And that's what we did. Well, thank you both very much for that. And on that optimistic note, we'll, uh, we'll leave it there. Thank you. 2020 was a strange year for everyone. But what we've seen in Singapore dispute resolution is a mixture of reactions. Hesitancy from some businesses about starting claims, as we heard from Smita, but a bumper year of new cases at the SIAC and some interesting trends when you go behind the statistics. I'm very grateful to all our panellists for taking the time to join me. So thanks again to Smita Menon, Delphine Ho and Benjamin Hughes. Part two of this podcast features a further two conversations, one looking at the Singapore International Commercial Court and another about the third party funding landscape in Singapore and more broadly in Asia. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion and that you'll join us next time for part two of our 360 degree analysis of the disputes regime in Singapore. Goodbye.